hey, we're going to do this summer, we're going to do something a little different, but we're also going to then do something doubly different tonight. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pause, let our brains reset a little bit from some of the worldview stuff, although it's tied to that. Uh, we're going to take this summer and really spend this summer walking through what I would call the story of Scripture, just by curiosity. Uh, and this is not a guilt question, but how many, how many of you have actually can say, not, a, not a necessarily one time, but you have, uh, at, over the course of your life, you've read every book of the Bible? Okay, maybe a little over half of the room. That's not a guilt if you haven't read every book of the Bible. Uh, what it is saying is one of the things that we discover more and more and more is challenging in the church is there has been for a while, it's just gone unnoticed and we see it much more now. There just is the reality of uh, a lot of biblical illiteracy, a lot of biblical confusion, a lot of where does this come? Where does that go? Uh, uh, where does that story fit in? Where, you know, you, especially, especially with the Old Testament, where does that prophet fit in? Wait, wait a minute. So Genesis through Kings is in chronological order, but nothing after that's in chronological order. How do, how do we navigate all that? So we're going to spend some time this summer just because I know people are going to be in and out. Some will be here every week. Some will be in and out. We're going to spend time. We're going to walk through in, in, in a really fun overview fashion. I've done it before and I'm excited to do it again here. And uh, we're going to just walk through Genesis Revelation over the course of the summer. And uh, excited about what that's going to be. And then we'll, we'll jump back into the broader category worldview. But tonight, uh, we were going to start that tonight, but we're going to do something a little different. Um, chances are we're not going to be able to, to, to do this tomorrow. We were going to kind of do it as some extra content for the podcast, but uh, just from some scheduling stuff, probably won't be able to do it tomorrow. And, and I wanted to get to it, which is this. This Sunday, uh, we spent some time in John chapter 11. And I uh, started everything off asking the question, what do you do when death shows up at your doorstep? Or maybe it's not death, but just intense tragedy, sorrow, loss. What do you do when it shows up at your doorstep? And even broader than that, if whatever you do is going to be dictated by who you believe God is in the midst of it and how you believe God responds to you as the one experiencing the sorrow. And as with any sermon every week, uh, I never actually preach everything that I've studied because um, we run out of time. And I do want to respect the fact that it's close to lunch for many people. But um, there were some things we really, we either didn't get to, to, to dive in as fully or some things that we just didn't even get to touch at all this Sunday. So what I'd like to do, because that issue of grief and sorrow is so prevalent in our world today, the reality is this, you are likely either experiencing hardship or you are likely ministering to someone experiencing hardship. Or if you're not in one of those two categories, then you are maybe a third party observer and your time's coming in one of two places, but you're seeing the hardship going, how, how to process this, how to look at this. So I just, I want to dive back in for a little bit tonight, back into John 11 and hit some stuff that we either had to cut short Sunday or didn't get to go all the way through. And so I invite you to join me there in John 11. Go back in to John 11. And just kind of bring us back in when you walk through this passage, it's interesting, right? John 11, what's the miracle? Lazarus rises from the dead, right? And, um, but isn't it interesting that there's only about four verses devoted to the miracle out of 46? Four to the miracle, two to the response of the miracle. That means there's 39 or 40 verses that are devoted to everything else that goes into that story. And I'll never forget, eight months after my grandmother was murdered, we were out, uh, I, my, my parents said, part of that story with my grandmother's murder is, um, uh, I, I went off to college in, in August of 2007, and six weeks later, uh, six to eight weeks later, two things happened very close back to back. One, one of my good buddies growing up, his dad was our baseball coach, athletic director. He was killed in a head-on car wreck. Uh, coming into town on University Drive. And then a month later, and then right after that, my parents moved from Bryan College Station where I grew up. Dad, uh, God moved them to First Baptist Rockwall. And uh, what I didn't really understand at that time would be deeply impacting is uh, home became very nebulous for me. As a freshman in college for your parents to move because home with my parents is their new home in their new city, but everything else is foreign to me. Home where I feel home and I grew up and now I got to stay on people's couches, but home where my life is actually is in a dorm room at college. So it became very out of whack. And then a month after Coach Ezek was killed, another man in our church was killed in a head on car wreck. And then a month after that's when my grandmother was murdered. 
And so uh, fast forward eight months, I had gone back to my parents' church, and I'd never been to Glorietta, New Mexico, heard all about it, because Mimi and Papa love Glorietta. How many people have been to Glorietta? Just by, okay, good. You'll get, and you'll understand the story even better. We went to National Collegiate Week, and basically the rules were, uh, uh, the rules were that you had to be there at the evening, evening session, but kind of the rest of the time, you, we were all free to do what we wanted, and, and um, National Collegiate Week is, is basically a conference at Glorietta for college students. And that morning, I wandered down. Uh, no one else wanted to go down. I wandered down, and I, I, I walked in, and I, I listened as the preacher began to preach through John chapter 11. And the reason I asked the question, what is it known for, is because I heard John 11. I went, oh, Lazarus, okay, interesting. And then he began to walk through the passage. And as someone eight months out from the greatest, the worse than my worst nightmare I could have ever dreamed, and I began to see who God is and how he responded, it impacted me, it pierced me deeply. And I, and I sat there quietly in the back, tears still in my eyes. And so the reason I, I bring out that the miracle is this brief part is because had I not ever heard somebody walk through it, I would, I would never have, have thought to go look and walk through John 11 and go, God, who are you in the midst of sorrow and how do you respond? Because you just go, John 11, uh, Lazarus, rise from the grave. Which in one sense, when you're in tragedy, is not super comforting because you're like, well, Jesus isn't here physically to, you know, to, to call my loved one out of the grave. And here's the reality as you look at this passage right off the bat. You are confronted in this passage, and we saw it Sunday. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Now Jesus loved. He stayed there two days. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Here's the reality. Death is real. And I know some of you go, ah, Pastor, that's real profound. <laughs> yeah, death is real. One of the first real realities you can I come to in this passage is the fact that people whom love Jesus and people whom Jesus love die. They experience death. Lazarus was probably not someone old that everybody went, well, man, Lazarus lived a great life. Glad he died in his sleep silently. I mean, the emphasis is he's sick. There's something tragic. There's something that's interrupted. Lazarus dies and death brings sorrow. And even though you get to the end, here's the other reality. Even though Lazarus will experience being resurrected, Lazarus died again at some point. And there was weeping and sorrow and whatever that took place. Death is a reality. And death is a reality because you and I live in a world that is broken by sin. We talk about worldview, creation, fall, redemption, part of the fall, Genesis chapter three, sin enters into the picture. And what does Romans five say? That just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin. If you remove sin, you remove death. The reason death is present is because sin is a reality that has broken us. It's broken our bodies. It's broken our relationship with our creator. It's broken all of creation. Creation cries out. Sin uh, is, is, or death is a result of sin. Even James says, don't say God tempts you. God's not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anybody. And instead it says, uh, you're, when you're tempted, and it says, it doesn't say that temptation is a sin. You and I are tempted it's when we give in to the temptation that we sin. And then it says, and then sin brings death. Death is a reality. It's unavoidable. Here's the other factor though. Death is clearly, according to, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 26, death is the enemy. Death is the enemy. And it's the last of the enemies of, of God's creation that's, that's put, put, death is put to death forever when the Lord returns. So understand, death is real and death is hard because death is not what you and I were made for. You and I were not made to experience it. You and I, even from the standpoint of, you and I were made beings that have a soul and a body and they, they, they exist in harmony and death separates them. That's not God's original design. Death is but death is a reality. And I praise the Lord. And we mentioned it Sunday, so I'm not going to go hard. But when you walk through this passage and you see it, you see it say, uh, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. That word means indignation. It carries a connotation of anger and outrage and disagreement with something. It means Jesus sees the destruction of death. And understand, it's not like this is the first time in John 11 Jesus will ever have seen death. It's pretty commonly held that Jesus watched his earthly dad die somewhere in between 12 and 30. Because 
Joseph doesn't ever show up after Jesus's, the story of Jesus at 12, uh, leaving his parents and hanging out in the temple. He's gone. He doesn't ever show up. The implication is Jesus and his brothers are the ones providing for the family. Jesus was not spared the sorrow of death, but when Jesus looks upon death, there is an indignation. There is a, an intense outrage and disagreement because God hates death. And I'll say it again. You and I should hate death. We should never be okay with death. Now, okay with the standpoint that all of us have an inevitable date with death, yes. And one of the humblers of life is we do have to accept that reality. And yes, obviously, if the Lord comes soon and depending on your views of rapture or no rapture, and if no rapture, if you survive the tribulation, then yes, some of us may not die. You might just be caught up afterward. But most of us have a date with death. It's the one absolute certainty of our life. And we're not ever told when it's coming. So, but we're also not told that we have to like it. But here's the reality. Here's what the whole deal is. What I want you to see is God hates death, but also recognize God doesn't stop death. That's a hard truth. But understand, God doesn't stop death in our lives. Sparing the Lord's return, all of us will face death. But also understand about God. The father did not stop himself from putting his son to death. And the son did not stop himself from completely and totally and fully experiencing death. And in that way, there is nothing you and I will face in death that Christ has not already gone before us and faced on our behalf. Except that when those of us are in Christ, when we breathe our last breath, it will not be having borne the full weight of all humanity of the wrath of God and sin, but it'll be in the joy of simply breathing out our last here to breathe in our first there. It'll be to see the Lord escort us home. There's a reality of death. There's also in this passage a reality of love. If you look, look at the very beginning, and I think it's fascinating that it's at the beginning. Lord, he whom you love is sick. Verse three, verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I think it's fascinating. The very first thing, if you walk through it verse by verse, the very first thing you and I are confronted with is Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. There is no question that Jesus's heart beats with love and affection. And you go, well, well, what's the word in Greek? Because you know, there's four different Greek words for love. Well, Two of them are used, both phileo and agape, both unconditional love and brotherly love. And I think the intention there is Jesus fully, holistically, he loves them. And before we ever know what's going to go on, before we ever see the rest of what happens, it is, it is unmistakable. The Holy Spirit, God himself, inspired John to write this in such a way that the very first thing you and I would understand in the text is that Jesus really does love these people. He really does love these people. It is emphatic. Yet after being told he really does love these people, it says he stayed where he was for two days longer. It says that Lazarus died. And so it brings into the hard reality of this church family is you and I are going to face sorrow and hardship. And it doesn't mean that anything has changed in Christ's love for us. And understand why that's hard. Because from an earthly perspective, I love my daughter, which is why I want to just keep her from any and every form of pain and harm. Now, on one hand, we can critique that and go, well, is that fully love, Wes? Because there's something she needs to learn by stubbing her toe and by um, learning that she can't actually walk down that step. Uh, I don't know if y'all watched her Sunday, but she went from scooting down the steps two weeks ago to she just trucked it off and she's not quite there yet. <laughs> uh, she's moving fast. Um, but I think it's easy for us as humans then to come to God and go, God, I know you love me, when things are good. But sometimes if we're honest, and I'll be honest, there's, there's days it's, it's hard when sorrow's real, when tough's there for you to go, all right, Lord, I, I, I don't feel like you love me today. 
Or maybe it's not because there's sorrow there. Maybe it's because I've handled the sorrow terribly. Yet the Lord's clear that the Lord loves. But just like God hates death, but he doesn't keep death, God loves us, but it doesn't mean he spares us hardship. Now think about this. You and I are supposed to know. I said Sunday, the application was know that his love is never in question. That as we face hardship, as we face sorrow, as we face, we've got to be confident. We've got to be sure. We've got to rest in faith that God really does love us, that his love is not in question. Where, how do we do that? When everything is going horrible, how do I when, I, when I don't feel that God loves me, how, what am I supposed to look at? Where am I supposed to turn my mind? Well, what does scripture say? In this Here's the supreme way that God's unconditional love for you and I is revealed to everyone. What is it? That he sent his son to be the propitiation. Where are you and I supposed to look to know that Jesus loves us? To look at him dying on our behalf on the cross. Now, isn't that the irony? In the midst of sorrow, how am I to be absolutely sure God loves me? By looking at the most horrific incident that's ever occurred in human history and seeing God suffering on my behalf. We've got to be sure he really does love because if if you and I walk into sorrow and we're not positive that he loves us, you're not going to want to relate to a savior that you question whether or not really loves you. That's wrong on our part. The struggle with does God love or not, listen, you and I are going to face some things that put us on our knees and it might be hard to really believe that. I'm not criticizing the... um, the, the, the battle, we'll get to that in a second. But when you and I make the choice to go, I just don't, I just don't want anything to do with God because I don't really think God loves me. That, that's not what we find in the, the passage. But realize the hardship for Mary and Martha. I know, what do we do? Lazarus is sick. He doesn't seem to be getting better. The doctors aren't helping. What should we do? Do we even know where Jesus is? Because he just got, he just got ran out of town. I don't know, but messenger, you gotta go find him. And all their hope is that Jesus is going to get there because they know if Jesus shows up here, Jesus is going to walk over to Lazarus and he's going to say, Lazarus, be good. And Lazarus is going to pop up totally fine. And they do it because they know he loves them. But it leads us to the other reality that Jesus delayed. That Jesus delayed. We're told he loves them when he hears this now. Now he loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse six, so in light of when he heard that he was sick, he stayed where he was two days longer. He heard this urgent plea from those whom he loves and the action wasn't to get up and run. The action was, yeah, we're just gonna stay right here. And the implication is that after, after two days, Jesus now has knowledge. He knows uh, via the father that Lazarus has died. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Verse 11, so we gotta go so I can wake him up. We got to go because there's, there's something going on here. This isn't supposed to ultimately end in Lazarus' death. This is going to end in a miracle that showcases who I am. But we still deal with put yourself in Mary and Martha's shoes. Jesus delayed. Jesus seemed very distant and very silent. And this is something we didn't get to Sunday, but the reality of learning how to find comfort in the sympathy of Christ, part of what that's going to mean for you and I, yes, it means being sure of his love. Yes, it means, as we'll see in a second, seeing how his sympathy is expressed. But it's going to mean you and I have to trust him in light of who he is, especially when it does not make any level of sense. There's the story of, if you're familiar with Corey Tinboom whose family hid Jews in Nazi occupation and ultimately were caught and dispersed. And if I remember right, I think Corey's the only one of her family who makes it out alive from the concentration camp. And she's got this story. She talks about how um, in, in, in their whatever sorry excuse they gave him for a shelter, they would hide in the back far away from the door and the guards and there were just these flies because of just the deplorable reality of what they were what they were dealing with and I just prayed that God would take the flies away because they were just driving them crazy 
and the flies never got taken away. Come to find out later on, the reason the guards didn't come back there and mess with those women are because it was so disgusting from that they were so grossed out by the flies. The flies were a means of protection. And so here's the reality, church family. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11 says, My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts, for they are higher than your ways. As well as the promise that my word goes out and it does not return void. It does not come back to me without accomplishing what I say. Which means two things. One, you and I cannot possibly fathom the mind and heart and depth and reality of God. It also means that anything God tells us is true cannot fail. Now in experience, those can be two really hard things living in this broken world. God's ways are beyond our ways. There's going to be things we don't understand. We don't understand. Uh, Mary and Martha, can you imagine? Can you imagine maybe them sitting there uh, after, uh, after Lazarus has died and say, Why, where, where's, and I'm, I'm, I realize I'm using conjecture here, so don't, don't take this as, oh, this really happened. This is purely conjecture, but, but tied our experience. Can you imagine them? It was not hard to fathom them going, Jesus, where was he? Why didn't he come? Why didn't he get here? And I, you know, I don't know how well they knew Jesus, but here's the other reality. If they knew that some of the miracles Jesus had, had done in the prior three years, they know that he doesn't have to be present to heal. He can just say the word from where he's at and bring healing. Roman centurion servant. You and I are going to have to trust even when we experience what seems like his silence and his distance. We'll call it his delays. His ways are not our ways. But we also understand from what he tells us in his word that God does not waste any sorrow in the life of his children. And what I mean by that, look at the passage. Think about this. What is Jesus doing here in John? What is he doing in the Gospels? He's telling a broken world I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the means to heal you. What is this miracle? This is the last great miracle in John. In fact, this is the miracle that will be the final thing to snap the Pharisees to say, we're going to kill him. This, it's after this miracle, Judas is going to go and sell Christ out. Look at it this way. Lazarus has to get sick. Lazarus has to die. But it's not because God is sadistic and cruel. Though at times for someone really struggling with sorrow, it, they may question that. But God does not waste. Jesus says from the beginning, there's a plan in place. This is for the glory of God. This is where it's going to go. And you and I are going to have to trust because his ways are different than our ways. We're going to have to trust when he feels silent and distant. But we've got to understand that God's silence never means he's distant. There's a lot of different reasons for why God may feel silent in trial. God may feel silent in trial because let's be honest, when I played football, how often did I talk to the coach when I was in the game? Very little. You don't talk to the coach a whole lot on the playing field. Is it possible that God is silent because God's actually working and moving and doing this? Could be. Is it possible that God is silent because he's expecting me to trust what he's already said? Could be. Is it possible that God only seems silent and distant because especially when you and I are walking through tragedy, we are so emotionally exhausted and in such shock that that's just how it feels. And it's okay to own that's how I feel, but recognize that's not true. One of the most powerful realities of things I learned in the years after my grandmother's murder came into play after, after Bethany called me that day a couple years ago and said, hey, I think something's wrong with the baby. And we just go through the horror of that day of uh, losing our child, powerless, unable to do anything. And because of what I had gone through beforehand, um, 
in that instance, it was so much easier for me to go, Lord, yeah, I don't know, Lord, that I feel like you're talking real loud. I don't know what you feel real distant, but what I do know is you're right here. And I can very calmly and very comfortably just rest. Because I've, I've, I, it was like that day I woke up expecting to go disciple this guy, getting ready for the new semester. And that day the Lord said, actually, we're going to stay away from that path. We're going to come back here to the valley of the shadow of death, to a valley I don't ever want to have to be around. But unlike the last time where there was a lot of time kicking and screaming and figuring out and this and that, this time, okay, well, if we're going to go here, then I'm just going to sit at your feet. Now, some days that's been easy, some days that's been hard, but understand his silence doesn't mean that he's distant. In fact, if the silence and the distance we feel is because we're shocked and exhausted in reality, what we're doing is we're really unaware that in those times, he's carrying us the whole time. You know, the classic footprints in the sand story. We've got to fight to believe truth because here's the reality. Satan is a real enemy who's going to try to do anything he can. Satan doesn't care that you and I are in sorrow, okay? Satan is not an enemy who goes, you know what? They're having a really tough time. Why don't I just lay off it for a little bit? That is not how the enemy works. Now, here is the key, though, too. The enemy certainly can't jack with us more than God allows him to. We know that from Job. So there may be more that the enemy would like to jack with us on that God goes, nope, sorry, you're not going to get to do that. But the enemy will come in and go, man, you feel so sad. You feel so sorrowful. You just, you just, you just, all you can think to do is fall to your knees and wail. God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really. We're going to, here's the reality is you and I will have to fight to believe truth, especially in the midst of sorrow. We will. Because we're going to have our own doubts as humans. That's normal. Because we're the ones experiencing it. But you're going to have an enemy that's going to come in and do the same. And here's the reality. Do not doubt in the dark what you saw clearly in the light. Do not forget in the dense thickness of the jungle what you saw in beautiful glory on the mountaintop. Do not fail to remember Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. They'll go ask whether there's a fire phase, but the word of the Lord endures forever. My feelings are up. My feelings are down. I'm in shock. I'm in grief. I'm in mourning all around. But what God says is true is true. We've got to rest in it. Part of trusting in the midst of, um, in the midst of sorrow, even when we don't really understand, part of it's going to mean you and I do have to act in obedience. Look at this with me real quick. Jesus tells Martha, um, your brother will rise again. Verse 23, Martha, verse 24, I know that he will rise again on the last day. 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, I believe this. So then look ahead. Verse 39, Jesus commands, remove the stone. Martha's like, Lord, you're crazy. It's going to smell horrid. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, if you faith, if you trust what I said, remember that faith is not wishful thinking, it's firm resting on what Jesus says is true, even though unseen. If you faith, you will see the glory of God. Martha's encounter with Christ in this story of, of, of to that point, tragedy. There's still more God wants to do and show her. Jesus has said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and she's got some level of understanding, and she says, I believe it. But Jesus is about to, to show her and reveal that even more so as he calls her brother out of the grave. But she had a choice to obey what he commanded. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying if she didn't obey that God, Jesus wouldn't have done it anyways. Lazarus was getting called up regardless. But Mary's encounter with the risen Lord, or the, not Lord what risen yet, but Mary's encounter with the resurrection and the life, she would have missed out had she not trusted and obeyed his word. You and I in the midst of grief, if we're going to want to really see Jesus, if we want to really know, we're going to have to trust at his word. We're going to have to obey as he goes, which means for some of us who have fallen off the cliff of grief, or sorrow into something. And clear, grief and sorrow is not unbiblical. But 
But you can go to an extreme where it becomes some kind of self-pity or bitterness or this or that. You and I are going to have to choose to forgive, to choose to trust, to choose to let go, to choose to push past so whatever it is. There's going to be there's an obedience factor that's there for, for some of us. So there's the reality. There's, there seems, there's this delay that we see in the passage, and we're going to have to trust the Lord even when we don't understand what's going on. But here's, why we, here's part of why we trust the Lord, the reality of Jesus' Jesus's mission. We saw this. God is working out his good and perfect plan. His good and perfect plan always glorifies his name. We understand that we were created for his glory. And that can be a hard truth because it does mean that this world and our life in this world is not ultimately about us and checking the box of all our bucket list. There's a plan for our life, a plan to glorify and honor the Lord. There, every one of us has a different plan with, it, with a different end date, with a different, we were made for his glory, so our, there's a hard reality that we have to submit to that. But we find in this passage, Jesus, as an example to us, he's fearless in his obedience. Hey, Jesus, why are we going back to Judea, the disciples say. Are you crazy? They want to kill you. And Jesus says, look, you only stumble in the dark, not in the light, meaning God's still got work for me to do. So we're not going to worry about how dangerous it is. We're not going to worry. We're not going to ignore it. It is dangerous. But God's got something for us to do, and we got to go. There's a fearlessness to his, to his obedience, and there should be a fearlessness to our obedience. That goes back there, but ultimately we, we hope in his glory is what we said Sunday. Our lives are for his glory, and understand if hoping in his glory means he has to bring glory out of tragedy, not you or me. I'll never forget soon after Mimi's murder, um, reading in the Psalms and coming to, coming to Psalm 40, where it says, he picked me up out of the Mary Bach. He put my feet on solid ground. He put a new song in my heart, a song of praise. And not that I always followed it well. I had ups and I had downs. I still have ups and have downs. But I clearly understood the Lord say that day, Wes, you can't heal yourself. Only I can do that. The grief, the pain, the sorrow of losing Mimi, of, of everything that's now etched in your mind from driving over there and seeing the scene and what's there, you can't heal yourself from that. But I can. Sometimes when bad things happen, we try to rationalize it. We try to figure it all out. We try to put this and that. And there is a danger in that. Is that not what Job's friends did? Let's say something true about God, but misapply it to the situation that then misrepresents God's character. Let's, why, let's answer why it happened. Listen, there's a place to ask why, but it's not in the midst of your deepest pain. Instead, we went rest, we trust and obey we understand that there's a, there's a greater knowledge of God that, that he will bring us to. It just, it's fascinating. When you look at some of the greatest sorrows in Scripture, when it, when it occurs to people walking well, right? David loses his son with Bathsheba. He knows why, but why the son was taken. There was a consequence of their sin, specifically his sin. But you look at people like Job, Mary Martha, you don't ever see God tell them why. But you do see God say, let me show you who I am. Job never got told why he lost all his kids, lost all his workers, lost all his wealth, lost everything, why his body's covered in boils. But he had God said, come with me. I'm going to take you throughout all my creation. I'm going to show you who I really am. You don't think that wasn't transformative for the rest of Job's life? If we want to really know and see the power of his resurrection. If we want, as we face, and listen, it can be a sorrow that's as simple if you're a kid in the room of, in your world, not making the all-star team you wanted to, to as big as you just lost the person you loved the most in a tragic way. God will take sorrow and will work his resurrection power out in that sorrow and will turn it and use it and we will know him deeper. But we're going to have to hope in his glory. He's, he will show us who he is. I mean, here's the reality. I, how I respond to grief today is 100% different than how I would have responded 15 years ago. But it's because of who God has shown himself to be. 
flip side of this too is as we encounter God, what God does is he's going to glorify his name through it. I'll never forget a young man who came to DBU. I have a prior relationship. He had been through all sorts of trauma at the hands of people who claimed to be believers. Emphasis on claimed. I'm not really sure they were. They weren't, but they were high school kids who were snarky on him. He had Asperger's syndrome in a day when not many people had any grace for that. And he and I had a prior relationship for when a few year period when he lived in College Station. And this guy's brilliant. IQ of a 198. If you don't know how to how to process that. Albert Einstein's was 160. If you have an IQ of 200, you're called an immeasurable genius. And one of the questions, it was a real turning point. He, he, he was only at DBU because his parents wanted him to have a college experience and they wanted it to be sure it was a Christian college. He didn't need to be at DBU. He's already smarter than every one of us in school there. But he asked me this question. He said, Wes, are you, are you angry at God? For your grandmother's murder. Now, my answer here, some of you face tragedy where you do feel angry at God. God can handle that. And you need to work through it with the Lord. So it's not meant to be a, but for I was in that moment, I was like, no, I'm not angry at God because God did not hire a gunman and God did not squeeze the trigger. Someone broken and depraved and sin hired a gunman and someone broken and depraved and desperate for money pulled a trigger. And it's interesting because in John's life and because of what God had done in my life to get me to that point at that moment where that was a true, honest answer, that was the turning point in John and I's conversations about Christ. Where ultimately down the road, he indicated he made a profession of faith and came to faith in Christ. So God does redeem tragedy for his glory. But let me also be clear. Just because God redeems tragedy doesn't mean you don't have a right to hurt. So you think about something real tangible like what happened in Uvalde. God will use that situation. It will redeem and he will shine his glory. And God will use that situation and use believers impacted by that situation. But let's be clear. Just because God will use that situation does not mean every one of those family members of those kids does not have a right to just fall to the floor in grief. And that's the beauty of when you move to the next part. Jesus is sympathy. Jesus is sympathy. He meets us where we're at. Martha's ready to talk. Mary's ready to weep. He meets both where they're at. When, when Mary's weeping, Jesus doesn't hold back his tears. He doesn't football coach it. He doesn't do what I fear we do in America, which is, which is Mary. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm going to use it for my glory. You don't need to be sad. He doesn't do that. Not only does he not stop her from weeping, he doesn't stop himself from joining her. Can you imagine what comfort? I mean, I, I, one of the things that are etched in my mind, I will never forget seeing my grandfather multiple times just lose rigidity and fall to the floor and truly hear what I had never heard, truly hear wailing. They're etched in my memory, the sounds, the sights. And I picture Mary coming and she just falls and is wailing. Can you imagine as she is wailing to feel a trickle on the back of her neck and on her head and to see Jesus weeping with her? Not telling her to dry her eyes, not, but weeping with her. Not weeping with her because he's powerless, weeping with her as the resurrection and the life. Weeping with her as one who is the God of all comfort. Weeping with her as, as one who is able to offer true and real comfort. Not giving trite answers or pithy statements, but but shedding tears with her. And I think for many of us, and it took me years, I always thought I dealt with grief well because I was not afraid to talk about what happened. But what I was afraid to do without realizing it was get alone where the pain really would come out and be very, very deep and real. And so I busied myself. Good things, ministry, school, but it ended up it ended up resulting in a um, in a period where um, in my first year out of out of college, first year in seminary, I put myself in the ER twice with viral infections. That they looked at and said, "Man, we'll give you a little morphine for your pain because it's clear you're in agony, but there's nothing we can do. You just got to wait it out." After the second one, it was particularly bad and particularly frightening. I dropped out of seminary for a year. 
that same time, the First Baptist Carrollton was transitioning me from interim to full-time, so I moved to First Baptist Carrollton. And, and I never, so here I am, exhausted, bodies falling apart. I never wanted to go to college and have a bunch of friends and do all this. I wanted to go to college like my grandparents, meet the love of my life, get married, do ministry, and ride off into the sunset at whatever age God called us home. That didn't happen. So now I'm, uh, this is in my mind at the time. Now I'm like, yeah, it's so dramatic with. Uh, I'm a seminary dropout living by myself in an apartment. And that was 100% the Lord's work because every day I had to come home and in quiet, I, I could no longer escape staring the pain. And I remember this real clear night, very, and I, I mentioned it Sunday, but I didn't elaborate. I just remember this real clear night Whereas I sat there and the pain was just very real. I'd seen something that really had triggered memories of Mimi and brought me to that point. And I remember telling the Lord, I said, Lord, I feel like if I really let myself go and grieve in this moment, I will never come off that. I, like, I feel like I'm on the edge of a cliff looking down and I can't see the bottom. And if I fall off, if I let myself really grieve, if I really hurt in front of you, I will never come up that. And the Holy Spirit said, jump off that cliff and fall. Because I've already gone down that hole and come out the other side. Which ties to something Corey Tindoon said, which is there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. And that's where I learned what it means to truly come before the Lord and just weep. Whether literally or metaphorically. To just weep, to just grieve. To know His comfort and to grieve with hope. I wasn't weeping that night on my floor because I was hopeless. I know there's hope. I know that the Lord's blood is good. He took my grandmother home. I know that the Lord will bring healing in my life. I know that God will use it. I know all these things. It's not without hope. It's very much hope. I learned how to weep before the Lord in hope, but to truly weep. And I also learned and experienced the touch of the God of all comfort. That Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 says comforts us in our affliction. And he says that we're supposed to comfort each other out of how God's comforted us. But here's what I fear for many of us, because we are so opposed, right? How, how are you doing after that loss? Well, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm standing strong. Why are you standing strong? Now, I get it. Hey, I, I got to stand strong for my family. I, yeah, but you also need to grieve, to hurt, to mourn, to lament. Something our culture's terrible at. We have a national tragedy, and two minutes later, we've got to take 800 different political positions on it. We can't just weep. I fear that for the, one of the reasons we in the American church struggle so much with grief and how to minister to those grieving is because in our grief, we've never really experienced Christ's comfort because we've never really gone to his feet and wept. Which brings to the last reality of, of stuff we didn't touch on, which is this. If this is how we see Jesus minister, he ministers to Martha and Mary, each where they're at. Martha's ready to talk. He, he, remind, he, he points Martha to who he is. Mary's, Mary's not at that point. He weeps with her. He hurts with her. He shows sympathy, literally to suffer with. Then here's the reality. That has to inform how you and I minister to other people who are grieving. And I know we're right about at time, and so I, I, this is this is this is we're doing perfect. This is it. So I know someone got to bounce out. So if you can hold for two minutes, here's the reality: Jesus may have delayed in the situation when he first gets the request, but do you notice that Jesus doesn't delay in, in how he ministers to Mary and Martha? You notice Jesus doesn't go, "Man, I just, I just, mm, that's heavy. I'm going to stay away." Sometimes that's what we do. And listen, when there's horrible tragedies, I learned very quickly to try to give people freedom. People say, uh, I don't know what to say at that. I, was, I don't know what to say about your grandmother. Great, you know what? I don't either, so you're good. I don't expect you to know what to say. Because I'm the one living it, and I don't know what to say. I'm grateful for, he's not here tonight, but I'll brag on him. I'm grateful for uh, Aaron Nelson, our current deacon chairman, after Aunt Bernie uh, was murdered. He just has several times said, Wes, I have no clue what to, tell, what to say. I just wanted to check on you and make sure you know we love you. And I said, Aaron, you don't know how absolutely perfect of a response that is. And I'm so very grateful. We don't need to avoid people because 
what they're facing is heavy and we feel insufficient. Church family, we're insufficient for everything. There's just certain situations we think we're sufficient for and we're relying too much on our own strength. We're all insufficient to face sorrow, to face death, to step in and minister. But God's grace is able to, to, to more than make us sufficient and able to be there. There were days when I, when I could not, in the days after shock and the initial grief, there was a period of about a year where I just, I couldn't cry about any of it. And I had my RD the, that I worked for would say, Wes, how, tell, me what, tell me how you're, tell me what's going on. Tell me your thoughts. About once a month, once every other month, we'd have these meetings and he'd ask. And I'd just share my thoughts. And he would cry. And I've told Chris for years, I said that one of the, probably the most loving thing I've ever seen somebody do for me is you cried in my place when I couldn't. Just because you were there. We should not avoid, vice versa. I, I had friends, and this was a hard thing to deal with. I had friends that knew the moment it happened and didn't call for three weeks just because they were scared. Now, on one hand, I get it. We're all, we're all freshmen in college. I don't expect them to know what to do. But as people following the Lord, we can't do that. I've lived through a lot of tragedy, and it's still scary when I get a phone call saying someone's faced tragedy. But if we're going to follow Christ's example, we've got to go in. It means we need to weep with those who weep. Don't be afraid of tears. Don't be afraid of people crying. And maybe you go, well, I'm not a super emotional person. They're crying before me. Great. Then just be there and you don't cry, but let them cry. Weep, mourn, listen. We need to learn the ministry of presence, of love, and even silence. You know why I think sometimes Jesus is ultimately silent in the midst of what's really hard pain? Because I think God is actually all wise. And he knows that in those moments, there's not anything to say. There's just a presence to pour out. Because at some point it hit me. I don't know that there really is anything that could be said. The real way that my pain will be healed. At this point, the only way you could really take all my pain away from Mimi's murder is to bring her back. But that's not an option. So my pain will be healed on that day when I see the Lord face to face and he wipes the tears from my eyes. It means we need to be comfortable with tears. No, tears aren't hopeless. It means we need to be hesitant to offer the band-aid of heaven. Listen, my hope and grief is not that my loved one is in heaven. My hope and grief is that my Savior is the resurrection and the life who is the God of all comfort. And too often what we do is we say, oh, well, you know, your hope should be, you know, she's in heaven. Yes, she's in heaven. And I can't call her. I can't text her. I can't hug her. I can't hear her voice. I can't love her. I am grateful that Jesus' blood is good and she is safe and secure and I will see her again. But the knowledge of heaven is not to say, Wes, you can't feel pain. And you notice Jesus doesn't do that here. Lord, if you've been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus wept. So, what do you do when death arrives at our doorstep, church family? Again, we've got to be sure of who he is. We've got to be sure of how he responds. And let who he is and how he responds drive how we respond. Because there is a real world that is in unbelievable pain. And I truly believe one of the greatest open doors God will give us as the church to both show and proclaim the gospel is when we, is when he opens the door for us to step into and minister to those who are hurting. Because apart from Christ, you will face grief, but it will be hopeless. So we've got to know who he is. We've got to know. And there's just some things, again, I appreciate some of it may have been a little rehashed, but I just, we weren't going to be able to do it on the podcast tomorrow. And I just think some of this is so important because of the world we live in. And we've all faced stuff. So I hope you feel encouraged. I hope you feel confident and stirred in your spirit of who the Lord is. I mean, just, man, how sweet to know that we have a Savior who is almighty, who is powerful, who weeps with us now. And it is the same Savior that's going to take that sweet nail-scarred hand he's going to wipe every last tear that he's kept counting his bottle completely and totally out of my eyes and your eyes in that place where it says death will be no more and we'll do some of this for all eternity 
But it'll be Jesus teaching us about himself and not you stuck with me. So let me pray and um, uh, we'll be back next week and we'll start uh, start with Genesis 1-1. And we'll just see how far we get each week because I've already got all the notes lined out and done out and we're going to have a great time. And uh, we will. Uh, you will definitely know, you'll at least have a cheat sheet that tells you where a prophet falls and which king. Uh, you may not remember them all because I can't remember them all because there's a lot, but... Um, we'll walk through it, and it'll be a, lot, a, good, a good time. So let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Jesus, thank you that you are not. Jesus, you're not just a Savior who weeps with us, but you're a Savior who in every way understand what's, understands what's, what it is like to be human because you came in the flesh. And you did not spare yourself any experience that we have to face. So you understand, I think, of Hebrews where it says to run with boldness into your throne room because you are a great high priest who can sympathize with our every weakness. And that's not just weakness to sin and temptation, Lord, but that's weakness to death. Weakness to doubt, weakness to confusion, weakness to hurt, weakness because we are frail Beings living in a dangerous world that is broken. And you, you know how to suffer with us. And so you say to run into your throne room with boldness, with confidence that we may find grace and mercy in time of need. And so, Lord, whether we're happily without sorrow today, whether we're deep in the trenches of sorrow, whether we've hidden sorrow away, wherever we find ourselves in this room or whoever's watching online tonight or listen to this in the days to come. Father, may we get up with haste and run into your throne room and find the grace and mercy and strength and healing that only you can provide. God, may we be a church family that takes care of each other well. And Lord, that takes, not just takes care of each other well, but takes care of the people you've placed in our circles and in our lives in this community, that through how we respond to the sorrow and heartache of this world, people would see you. And not just see you, but when asked whether they believe you're the resurrection and the life, that they would say, yes, Lord, I believe. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.